Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. We've been looking here at uh, Psalm 118, and we're going to finish up the last set of verses here about what we can thank God about for our salvation And uh, remember, this psalm falls within a group of psalms uh, known as the Egyptian Hallel. It's a group of six psalms from Psalm 113 all the way through Psalm 118. And it just basically recounts God's redemption of his people out of Egypt, how he uh, saved them and took them out of there and uh, how he miraculously provided for them. And uh, you see that, that phrase, hallelujah, show up frequently without, uh, within these uh, psalms here. And um, this psalm particularly, Psalm 118, um, was really used during their time of worship, festive worship, because they would be singing this on their way to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover, And uh, they were recounting everything that God did from verses uh, 1 through 18. And then when they got there to the actual gates of Jerusalem, uh, then they would begin to sing the second part as uh, what it says starts begins with, uh, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Uh, This psalm in particular thanks God for the salvation of, that we have in him. And if you haven't already noticed, um, the theme of God's steadfast love, right? That's kind of like the basis of this uh, this psalm. We see it recorded for us five times uh, throughout this scripture in uh, verses 1 through 4 and then also in verse uh, number 29. But also we find in this psalm four times the word salvation uh, and the word save. So God is using this. We need to be recalling about his love and uh, the salvation uh, that we have. And uh, so far we looked at a couple things. Uh, We looked at um, the psalmist's distress that he was in and how he placed no other confidence, no other trust except in God and God alone. Not in man, not in governmental leaders, but he trusted in God and God alone. And last week we saw that God was his strength and his song. And we can recall some of the things that uh, he had mentioned about that, that uh, God, his name was very powerful uh, to be used to help him. The Lord had helped him and that he even had a plan uh, for his life. Remember, he says, I'm not, uh, I thought I was going to die, but the Lord, uh, no, God had this whole plan that uh, he was not going to die and uh, God was going to work all through that. And so as we continue to look at this psalm in these last verses, 19 through 29, The psalmist, we're going to see, is going to be uh, praising God and giving thanks for his salvation because he is saved by God's love. And you'll notice as we move through this last set of verses of the psalm of how much this psalm is messianic in its meaning, meaning that it speaks of Christ, uh, that it talks of who Jesus is and what Jesus uh, is going to do. So this is what I'd like for you to take away with you this morning. Thank God for his salvation because he has saved you by his love. Thank God for his salvation because he has saved you by his love. 
Let's take note here of uh, some verses here uh, primarily. Number one, God's love is foundational to our salvation. If we're going to be thankful to God's love, we need to understand what it is. What is God's love? Well, Psalm 118 gives us a good understanding of this. And if we look at this psalm here, look at these verses, and we can see it how it uh, is kind of the fabric that, that makes up this psalm. Uh, he says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then he goes through the things, you know, about let Israel and the house of Aaron and also those that fear the Lord three times, that his steadfast love endures forever. And then in verse 29, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And so we see this thread, this common thread that is woven throughout Psalm 118. And it's not just here in Psalm 118. I mean, this is God's unfolding drama of redemption, all the way from Genesis, all the way through Revelation. There's this unfolding drama of who God is, who Jesus is, what he was going to do, how he has done it, why he has done it. And it's just a total revealing of who God is. And so we see this about this, about that his love, okay, it's this, his steadfast love endures forever. And this word is very unique because it doesn't have a simple direct translation into English. Now, you have it in your English Bible, there it's translated as the word love, okay? Um, but this word, uh, when we look at it, um, it's, it, it's not a very direct word that we can really get a good understanding of really what it is. We just have it translated as love here. Um, but what it refers to particularly is a particular type of love that God has. And what it is, is it's a love for his chosen people based on the covenant that he has made. This goes all the way back uh, to Genesis. Remember when uh, God revealed himself to Abraham? He called him out of the Ur of Chaldees, right? Here's, here's Abraham. He's a pagan worshiper. God tells him, hey, get up. I'm going to take you to a, a place. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your seed. This was all based upon God's covenant love that he chose Abraham. He chose this nation to bless and to love. And so this is the idea of what God is trying to get across to us, that his steadfast love is a particular type of love that he has for his chosen people. And so it's a different word uh, from God's love for the word in general that we usually get for the agape love, right, that sometimes we also see uh, in Scripture. It's a, it's a different type of love. Isaiah explains it like this in Isaiah 54.10. The mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord. And so steadfast love in Isaiah 54.10 is the same word that's used here in Psalm 118. In other words, it's a covenant-type keeping love that's not based upon what we do or what we don't do. I mean, because even Isaiah says here, the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. Now, all of us in here that are married or, um, or maybe you have attended a wedding, okay, 
Uh, when, do, at, when does it actually happen that the bride and the groom get married? I mean, when are they actually married? Is it when the preacher says, I do? Is it when they exchange the rings? Is it when they exchange the vows? I mean, is that when it happens? No, it's when they come together. That is when uh, they are married. But that ceremonial part of it is of them explaining and expressing a covenant that they are keeping, that they are going to make between the spouse and God. And then all of us, we're supposed to be the witnesses of this, right? And so they say certain things like, I will always make you waffles when you wake up every single morning, you know? I will always make sure that I, you know, all this kind of goofy stuff, right? But you're expressing your covenant love that you are going to do that, right? For rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, till what? Death do us part, right? Marriage is supposed to be forever, okay? So they have these covenants. And so if we can kind of try to get a good picture of that, of God's covenant love that he has for his people, and he says, I'm going to keep my love. It's going to endure forever. I'm going to have a covenant type of love towards you. And so this is the love God has for us if we are his people. If you know Jesus as your Savior, God's covenant love is not based upon what you do or what you don't do. It's based upon his covenant that he has made with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ lives forever. He is eternal. He will never go back on his promises. And so God keeps his promises not based upon what we do or what we don't do, but solely based upon what Jesus has done for us. And so God never breaks his promises, and his love really does endure forever. And this is where this gets very fascinating, because it's that covenant love is not based upon our performance. Why? Because Jesus saved us at our worst. Listen to what Romans 5, 6 through 8 reminds us of. It says, it tells us, for while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so God saved us at our worst. And so it's not based upon our performance that he saves us. He saves us because purely out of his love, uh, that God has pity upon us and he loves us and he uh, saved us from our sins. And so God's love and his salvation towards us is not based upon our righteousness because we don't have any. It's based upon Christ's righteousness and God keeps his covenant with us based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so we know God never changes and he's eternal and so his love never changes And will endure forever. And this is God's steadfast love, his special love that he has for his people. And this is the foundation of our salvation. So, what can we be thanking God for, right? We should be thanking God for his love that endures forever. I mean, if if we're not careful, sometimes we can get into this habit of thinking, like, oh no, God doesn't love me anymore because I did this, or I did that, or I said this or I said that. I want to let you know that God's love is still enduring forever, continually. 
Now, what does he want us to do? He wants us to correct it. He wants us to make, to make it right. But God's not over there going like this, you know, I'm never going to talk to you ever again, you know. I, I find it interesting. I mean, I even did this even when I was a child, and maybe you did as well. I mean, when you misbehaved and you got in trouble for it, you know, you, my dad would sometimes like come into the room and he'd want to talk to me after there's been a, a, a necessary part of discipline that has been administered, right? And I'm in there and I'm, I'm like, I'm never going to talk to you ever again, you know? Um, God doesn't treat us like that, right? Um, he has a covenant type of love towards us and it's foundational to our salvation. We need to be reminded of that often that Jesus saved us at our worst, our worst, right, sinner. In the very act of sinning, God saved us. So it's foundational. That's something that we can thank God for. Here's the second thing. Through his love, we experience his righteousness. Listen to what the psalmist says now. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Knowing God's love, we get a better understanding of God and his righteousness. Verses 5 through 18 in this psalm are, are mostly in the past. That's what God has done. He has saved them. Uh, he's, he's brought him out of that area of distress. He's, he's kept him from falling off the edge of the cliff when all the nations surrounded him, swarming him like bees. Remember all that? And so the psalmist has now gone through all of those things, and now he's come up to this point in verse 19, and we're in the presence where we're, 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 he's there at the gates, and he's saying, open to me the gates of salvation. And it's a joyful scene. Verse 24 puts it this way. It says, this is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, the gates of righteousness are the gates of the temple. Remember, this psalm is in two parts. First part, verses 118, is they're heading towards the temple. And verse 19 through 29 is them actually now entering in to uh, the temple there to worship. And so there's this pilgrimage and the recounting of everything that God has done. And now they're coming up to the gates. Open to me the gates, uh, that he says. And it's a joyous pilgrimage. Uh, now they finally arrived at Jerusalem. The psalmist stands at the gates in verse number 19 and 20. And we can picture the, the festal procession. Verse 27 with the crowd crying out, Oh Lord, save us. Oh Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so here they are at the gates of righteousness. How does one enter through the gates of righteousness? The worshiper needed to check his heart and make sure that he was right before God. God always made that as a requirement. If you're going to come before me, he says your heart needs to be right, needs to be clean. And so that was always a, a requirement and so here the worshiper comes before God and he, he needs to be made righteous. He needs to go through these gates of righteousness. You see, because of sin, we have no righteousness of our own. The Bible tells us that all of our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. And it's not just some like, you know, rag that you were checking your oil with either, okay? It's filthy. 
It's disgusting. And so we need to make sure, hey, if we're going to enter in through the gates of righteousness, it's not my righteousness that I'm coming through with these gates. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Our best deeds, our good works are as filthy rags before the Lord. We always come up short. We're reminded in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53.11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous? And he shall bear their iniquities. Philippians 3.9 reminds us and says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteous from God that depends on faith. You see, when we trust Christ as Savior, God clothes us with Christ's righteousness so that we may enter his holy presence now. Notice what the psalmist is saying here. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. This tells us two things about God's love. Number one, God only provides one set of gates to which the righteous can enter, the gates of righteousness. There are not many gates, but only one gate. How does this show us the love of God? Well, he has provided a way for us. He didn't just leave us to stand out there on our own. He says, this is the gate. This is the only way in right here. And who is that gate? Jesus Christ. We enter in through his righteousness. We come before the Lord through Jesus Christ. And that's the only set of gates that's available. In fact, Jesus said, if you come up any other way, you're a what? A thief and a robber. So there's only one set of gates that we can ever enter into the presence of the Lord, and that is through Jesus and Jesus alone. You see, if God didn't love us, then he would not have made a way for us to enter into his presence. And he provided a way. The author of Hebrew encourages us to draw near with confidence to God. Listen to Hebrews 4.16. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and the help in time of need. Secondly, the gate that the Lord provides is himself. Notice what the psalmist says. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. There's that phrase again. We looked at it, I believe, last week about becoming our salvation, right? The Lord has become our salvation. Jesus reminds us very well about the gate in John chapter number 10. He says, I am the gate, right? I am the shepherd. Anybody that enters in, right? They come in, they go out, they find pasture. And he says uh, that he's the good shepherd. He's the one that lays down his life for the sheep. And he says, a, a, a false shepherd, they will not follow. He says, my sheep know me. I know them. They hear me. Uh, and he is, will not lose one. And so you have to know the shepherd and, and to enter through the gate. And we had no hope of righteousness, but the Lord provided himself so that we may enter into his presence. So be thankful of God's love often because, why? You've been able to experience his righteousness by entering in 
to God's presence through Jesus Christ. Here's the last thing. Through his love, we are his. Verse 28, the psalmist says, You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you, praise you enthusiastically, is what he's saying. How could he say that? Because it was personal. He belonged to the Lord. I mean, listen to, look at the verse here, verse 28. You are my God. Not my family's God. Not my dad's God. Not my mom's God. My brother's God. My sister's God. He says, you are my God. There's a personal touch to that. The psalmist recognized that through the covenant love that he belonged to the Lord. This is where this psalm gets really good in these verses that follow because they're messianic, okay? They talk about Christ. Look what it says here, verse number 22. Notice the stone, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Remember that some believe that this psalm was written about King David, uh, just primarily because he talks about all the nations surrounding me. And uh, it could be that David was writing this and was talking about how his own people had rejected him, but God had preserved him and and placed him there on on the throne. But the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, is what this verse teaches us. And as we look at this scene, we can't help but realize a bigger picture here, right? I mean, this was written probably a good thousand years before Christ ever ever showed up on the scene. And we see that uh, in the Gospels that Jesus clearly applied this verse even to himself. And he says that, right? He says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he was the stone rejected by the builders, the Jewish leaders, and he became the cornerstone. That's what he teaches us in Matthew 21, 42. And this is all part of God's unfolding drama of redemption. Take note specifically at verse 23 here. Because he says here, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Whose doing is this? It's the Lord's doing. You know what's fascinating to think about? Is that the rejection and the exaltation of Jesus Christ was at the hands of God. God planned it that way. That God would plan that Jesus would be rejected and that he would be exalted. That was all part of God's plan. Sometimes people think, well, you know, it was the Jews that did this and the Romans that did that and, you know, all those things. Yeah, I can get what you're saying, but it was all planned by God that God would reject Jesus and that he would exalt Jesus. And so the stone has been rejected, but it has been now exalted as the cornerstone. Isaiah 53, 10 reminds us, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering of sin, Acts 2, 23 says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Philippians 2, 7 through 11 says, Being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him now and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we look at this psalm, one can only think of when these words became a reality a thousand years later, when God would reveal his love, when another king, Jesus, would come on the scene, and he would ride in possession on the back of a colt, right, going through the streets, And what were they saying? He was going through those very same gates that David approaches here. And what were the people saying as Jesus approached? Remember on on Palm Sunday, what were they saying? Verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. And it's a day of salvation when the rejected stone became the chief cornerstone. Verse 26, we see these very words in Scripture, do we not? In the Gospels, the people are there laying down their palm branches. And what are they saying? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you know what's interesting about all this? All these people that were putting out their palm branches and everything were also now the same people later on saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so the stone that has now been rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Take a look at verse number 27. I love this. It says, he has made his light to shine on us. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. This is all part of his love again. Turn over with me to uh, John chapter number 1. And uh, just want to show you a few scriptures here concerning this light that has shined upon us. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the what? The light of men. Then he tells us the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And so we have this light of who Jesus is, and it tells us here in Psalm 118, it says, The Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. Matthew 4.16, Jesus said this, He said, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. This is what is so amazing about His love. God grants for us the light of salvation to understand the gospel, to understand his word, to understand what he did for us. And God gives us that aha moment, right? Gives us the faith to believe, gives us the grace. It's all an act of God and his love. And so through his love, we are his. 2 Corinthians 4.4 reminds us that before we knew Christ, all of us as unbelievers... 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so salvation is a miraculous thing that happens when we come to faith in Christ and through his love, his light shines upon us and we're like, whoa, I didn't realize how sinful I really was before God. And we behold God's grace and his mercy and his love and we respond uh, to the message of the gospel. Note, note also in verse 27, this last part of it, he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival, festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Wow! This is God's way of salvation. It, it requires an appropriate sacrifice on his altar. And Jesus alone is God's complete and final sacrifice for our sins. That's what Hebrews uh, chapter 10 verses 1 through 14 teaches us. That it was Jesus. It's not by the blood of bulls and of goats, right? He says Jesus himself has entered into the, to the Holy of Holies and made himself the sacrifice. And Jesus alone is that complete and final sacrifice for our sins. And so Christ has become the sacrifice for our sins by dying on the cross. Now don't you think this psalm must have been a great help to Jesus right before he was going to be crucified? I mean, I really, really, really believe that that moment that he was spending the time with his disciples uh, as he was instituting the Lord's Supper, and it says that after they did that, they went out to the Mount of Olives and they sung a hymn. I believe they were singing these songs. And as Jesus is singing this, and you think about him praying in the garden, no doubt, I'm sure, maybe he's recalling some of these things. Enter into the gates of righteousness. Bind the, uh, the, uh, the sacrifice upon the altar. Jesus knowing that this is going to be him. This must have been a great comfort uh, to him. Knowing that he was going to be disowned, that he was going to be rejected. Knowing that he was going to be flogged. Knowing that he was going to be beaten. Go through a mockery of a trial. Knowing that his hands and his nails were going to be pierced and knowing that they're going to take a, a spear and ram it up into his side and he was going to thirst on the cross and everybody was going to say, oh, you think you're the Christ? Come down off that cross. You saved others, save yourself. And uh, Jesus, knowing that he was ultimately going to be abandoned by God as God turns his back on his own son. You see, in God's plan of redemption, Jesus died a real death. The psalmist, as he writes here, remember what he, what he talks about? He thought he was going to die, right? But God preserved his life. Jesus did die. But then God resurrected him on the third day. He lived again. And so God raised him up so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, is what Philippians 2.10 teaches us. And so this psalm just overflows with God's covenant love that he has towards us, not based upon what we do or what we don't do, but totally based upon his son, Jesus Christ, being the sacrifice for our sins. You know, when we think about his love and the desire for God, for, for us to know God, that God wants us to know him, the question that I think sometimes we might ask is, why did God plan it this way? 
Why did God put his son through this? Why did the stone have to be rejected before it became the capstone? The answer to all of that is we needed to be saved. God knows that. And it's not the declaration of the psalmist here, like what he says, save us, we pray, O Lord. You see, if we didn't need saving, there wouldn't need for there to be a cross, would there? I mean, if we were, if we were really that good, there wouldn't need to be a cross. But that ought to tell us something about how sinful we are and how loving God really is, that there had to be a cross in order to save us. And if God were not defined by his covenant love, then I don't suppose that he would even have bothered to save us. But he did. He displayed his love towards us. And salvation is always personal. You must be able to say with the psalmist, look at verse 28 is what he says as we wrap this up. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God and I will praise you enthusiastically. And so the psalmist now comes full circle as what he began with in verse number one. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. So thank God for your salvation. Thank God for your salvation frequently. Thank God that he loved you even though while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you and showcased his love for you. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.